Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm talking with Emily St. John Mandel. Emily is the author of four novels, most recently Station Eleven, a beautiful and propulsive story about a traveling Shakespearean theater company roaming a post-apocalyptic America. Station Eleven was a finalist for a National Book Award and the Penn Faulkner Award, and it won the 2015 Arthur C. Clarke Award and the Toronto Book Award. Following the success of Station Eleven, Emily was able to quit the job she'd held while writing her previous novels and focus on writing full-time, a job she now balances with motherhood. In this conversation, recorded in each of our home offices just a few days after the presidential election, we discuss making that shift. We also talk about presidential reading habits, finding creative inspiration in the sciences, and self-doubt after success. It's only really now that I'm starting to get a sense of what it's like to write full-time. Hello, Emily St. John Mandel. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, do you want to start by introducing yourself and your work to the listeners? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, I'm a novelist primarily. I do the occasional essay or book review, but I feel like like novels are really my main work. Um, I've written four novels in total. The most recent one is called Station Eleven, and it's about a traveling Shakespearean theater company in a post-apocalyptic North America. And that came out back in 2014. Um, previous novels are The Lola Quartet from 2012, um, The Singer's Gun in 2010, and Last Night in Montreal in 2009. I'm originally from Canada. I grew up on a small island off the west coast of British Columbia. Uh, my father's from California, so I have dual citizenship with the U.S. So I came down to New York City when I was about 22, and I've lived here ever since. You mentioned having several novels before, and I know, you know, from previous conversations we had that you were working part-time a lot of times through those other works. And can you talk about just kind of making that transition to being full-time and kind of experiencing the, you know, the success of Station Eleven kind of being out in the world? Sure, absolutely. The, the success of Station Eleven is frankly surreal. I think we'll never get used to it. It's, um, it's just been the most incredible and unexpected thing. So my first novel, Last Night in Montreal, it's sold to a very small publisher out of Missouri and Colorado. They have no head office. They just have people all over the country um, called Unbridled Books. They were so wonderful to work with. You know, they're a very small company. They publish, I want to say, about 12 books per year, um, original titles, and then, you know, paperback versions of whatever came out the year before. It was such a pleasure to work with them. I had such a great editor. But after three books of Unbridled, I just felt like I was never going to find more readers until I went to a bigger publishing house. And there was something a little bit sad about that because they really were wonderful. And I think it points to a larger problem with book discoverability in, in America, probably around the world, actually which is that it is really hard for small press books to get any attention whatsoever. I, um, I often write book reviews for the New York Times and occasionally for The Guardian, and it's always big press books that are offered to me. Um, you know, so those are the books that get the attention of reviewers. It, it can be very, very difficult for a writer with a small publishing house to get any traction whatsoever. And you know, if we're being honest here, that there is, of course, a financial um, impact there. So. Yeah, with um, with my first three novels, I just got to the point where I felt like I just don't want to get thirty two dollar royalty checks anymore. You know, so, right? Yeah, it was uh, it was difficult to make it all work. Um, I 
I had always had a day job. I started working when I was 18, um, restaurant kitchens, coffee shops, retails, and moved into doing um, more like executive assistant and administrative assistant type work in my mid-20s. So the last day job I had, I was a part-time administrative assistant at a cancer research lab at the Rockefeller University in New York. And administrative work is by nature not particularly exciting, but the environment was so interesting. I really liked being there. To have a job where all of your colleagues are brilliant, um, anybody who's ever had a job, you know, can attest to how incredibly rare that is. That was a really wonderful thing to be surrounded by smart people and to be in a really interesting environment where people were doing work that I believed in. You know, they were looking into, um, well, it was the role of microRNAs in breast cancer, melanoma, and colon cancer metastasis. And there were implications there for treatment, um, you know, for a post-chemotherapy world, potentially. So it was a really exciting place in a lot of ways. And from a strictly practical viewpoint, because I know many of your listeners are writers, um, that was a part-time job with really good health insurance, which is incredibly rare in this country. Absolutely. So. I probably held on to that for much longer than actually made sense. <laughs> what happened with Station Eleven was the book got a lot of traction pretty early on. It was a a buzz pick for Book Expo America, and then it was a um, an indie next pick. And it, it you know there was a lot of there was a lot of attention before it came out in that September of 2014. So when I first started talking to my publicist at Knopf. She said, you know, so for the tour, we have a budget for five cities. And I thought, all right, well, that sounds a little bit light, but, you know, I'll, um, you know, you do what you can. Um, then somehow five cities expanded into like 17. And then partly what happened with the tour was we'd sold, uh, we'd sold Station Eleven to a different publisher in every territory. So I had a fairly short American tour planned, but then my British publisher was like, well, could you come to the UK for a week? Um, you know, of course I can. And then another American festival materializes after the UK. And then Canada's like, could you come to Calgary? And then more US stuff. So what happened was what I thought would be a pretty short tour over a period of maybe two or three weeks in September, October, somehow just stretched and extended until it sort of rolled into the paperback tour the following summer. And, and then what I realized was that it just wasn't going to stop for a while. And I'd gotten to this incredible, unexpected point where financially I didn't really need the day job anymore. But the truth of the matter is that if you grow up working class, it's really hard to quit your day job. You know, there's always that terror of poverty. So I, um, I held on to the job long past the point where it made sense. I remember being on tour in the UK and booking plane tickets for my boss at literally midnight on a Sunday in a hotel room. I just thinking, Oh my God, <laughs> this has to stop. So finally in the summer of 2015, it was around June or so. Um, I was pregnant with my first child. So I realized that the job was going to be challenging anyway, because of that. And then I looked at the calendar and realized I was going to be touring almost continuously from August 21st through November 7th. And it got to the point where I felt like it wasn't really fair to the day job. You know, they, uh, they really needed somebody who wasn't perpetually on the road and they tried to keep me, which I found really flattering. Um, but it just didn't really make sense. So I finally gave my notice and kept on touring until I was seven months pregnant. <laughs> and, uh, so of course what happened was, um, it's only really now 
that I'm starting to get a sense of what it's like to write full time because I quit the job, but then I had a baby pretty soon after. And so, you know, that's, uh, that's time consuming. Um, and there are, there has been a lot of travel still over the last year or so, mostly paid lectures, um, in different parts of the U S. So it's only fairly recently that I feel like I've really started to settle into a rhythm of, of writing in a, in a concentrated way, you know, having time every day to do it. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what your writing routine is like in a normal day? Sure. Absolutely. Um, it's entirely dependent on childcare as, you know, as happens with the baby. Um, so the nanny comes in from 10 AM to 4 PM in general, Monday to Friday. And, you know, of course, during that time, I will come up and have lunch with the baby and hang out with her a bit. But, but that's, you know, that's six hours, which I recognize as the most unbelievable privilege. You know, I think that most parents um, who are writing and have small children probably don't get that much time. And I just, um, I feel incredibly grateful that the success of Station Eleven has made that possible. So, yeah, I have, you know, in theory, about six hours a day. That is the six hours in which one has to do everything. So also running errands and dealing with emails and all the uh, the administrative stuff that crops up in, in anybody's day-to-day life, paying the gas bill, all the rest of it. Um, but yeah, it uh, in general, 10 to 4, Monday to Friday. And how does that compare when you were working? When were you fitting writing in then? Um, when I was working, I was doing the most concentrated writing on weekends. My husband's a writer as well, and... One of the major advantages to that is that, you know, it's, it means that you live with somebody who shares your idea of a perfect Saturday, which is let's lock ourselves in our offices and I'll see you at dinner time. <laughs> so, yeah, so I would do these really intense weekends, um, you know, eight, nine hours on Saturday and Sunday. And then during the week, the deal with the day job was that I had to go in for about four hours a day. Um, so, and it was pretty flexible, which was nice. So I would either write in the morning for a couple hours and then go into Manhattan for the job or vice versa. I, I also, out of necessity over the years, I really tried hard and I think I succeeded in training myself to write just about anywhere, which I find to be a really helpful thing. I, um, I meet writers sometimes who are like, well, I can only write in my home office. I can't write while I'm traveling. You know, it has to be a certain temperature. I need a cup of tea. And I feel like you've just got to write, or or I I just have to write anywhere I find myself, or I won't get much work done. So I actually did a lot of writing on the F train in Manhattan, going to and from my day job. Um, uh, I'd often, you know, take a 45-minute break at the job and go write somewhere in a corner, you know, find a table in a common area. So, yeah, you know, it's just a matter of fitting in the job wherever I could, and it never felt like enough time. But what I've realized now, writing, you know, in theory, writing full time is that it still doesn't feel like enough time. <laughs> You're wrong way to fit your life around your writing. It strikes me too, you know, you mentioned growing up working class, and it strikes me as a very sort of workmanlike approach to kind of take, um, not in a derogatory way, but take some of the preciousness out of it. Yeah, yeah. I've been very conscious of trying to do that because I feel like it can get a little silly. Um, you know, People will ask me, usually people who are maybe just starting their first project, um, they say, you know, well, do you wait for the muse to strike? And it's just like, what are you talking about? I just sit down and write. <laughs> or, or when people ask me about my writing process, it's like, I don't know. I mean, I've got a piece of paper and a pen, or I've got a computer. And, um, you know, I, I just write prose. Um, and 
For me personally, being workmanlike about it and taking kind of an unromantic approach has been helpful in just getting it done because uh, the preciousness is kind of irritating to me. You know, these people who say they can't possibly write in hotel rooms. It's like you're alone in a quiet room with a desk. What is the problem? Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I've, uh, I have tried to take that approach. And, and also, that was partly out of necessity because what having a part-time day job meant you know, I was really lucky to be able to do that um, because my husband works as well. So, you know, having a dual income household is very helpful in that. Um, but, you know, that wasn't really enough money for me to pay my share. So I had to sell a book every couple of years to make that work. So, you know, you'd sell a novel to a small press for $10,000, $15,000. And, you know, that enables you to write part time for another year or two. So, yeah, it always felt necessary to keep the books coming. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, going back to what you said about the small presses and and the kind of desire for a larger readership, balancing that, you know, that process over years and over several books with what I imagine would occasionally be the worry of, you know, why aren't I with a bigger press yet? Or will I find an audience and kind of keeping yourself going? Um, Basically, I'm, I'm asking kind of what creative success and satisfaction looks like to you, you know, was it? Was you, were you just thinking, okay, I get to write another book. I got the money to write another book. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, I get to keep doing this. You know, I've found this balance that works between the part-time job with the health insurance and, you know, a small advance every so often. Um, what I've, what I've always found is that, uh, you know, to, to back up a little bit, I feel like writing and publishing are such different separate things. And, I almost find that writing can be an antidote to publishing. Hmm. You know, with publishing, so much is out of your control. Um, You get a good review, you get a bad review. Sometimes a bad review seems justified. Sometimes it seems based on such a complete misreading of your book and a complete misunderstanding of what you were saying. But you can't really say anything because you'll seem like a lunatic. So, um, you know, you just have to kind of take a lot as a writer. Um, And being able to escape into the secret world of a new project has always been really helpful to me. So my first novel, Last Night in Montreal, it took two years to find a publisher. That was a moment in publishing when there wasn't really any particular appetite for books that were more than one genre. And Last Night in Montreal, you know, this whole genre question is a whole other thing. It's kind of slippery and subjective. But Last Night in Montreal was, I would call it literary fiction, but it's also a detective story. So now, that was a moment in publishing when there wasn't a huge amount of interest in that. This was back in, say, 2007, 2008. So, you know, I spent two years getting rejection letters from probably about 35 publishers. And during that whole time, what kept me going was writing The Singer's Gun. So I really always used the new project as a way to kind of, to not worry too much about, about the publishing process of whatever book came out the most recently. So you kind of look at it as the, once I've written the book, it's out of my hands. Yeah, absolutely. Which I think you have to for your sanity. Um, and I, I also feel like, like the relationship that readers have with my book, it's, it's almost none of my business. I, um, I read a quote that I really liked once from the writer and critic Edmund Wilson, who wrote, no two people ever read the same book. And I think that's absolutely true. I think we all inevitably come at a book through the lens of our own personal experiences and reading habits and expectations and everything else. And so I think every, every reader 
does take something different away from a given book. And the writer really has no control over that. Along that line, you know, I know I've asked you before about after Station Eleven, if you feel kind of pressure to write in this genre more. And, and like you said, the genre question itself is very subjective. And, and so kind of diving into that, you know, what did you feel like you had written a genre book, first of all, or, a, you know, a dystopian, a kind of post-apocalyptic book? And then what, what do you think kind of keeps you from, from feeling either external or internal pressure to kind of repeat that? Right. Um, I feel no pressure to repeat it, which I really appreciate. And I think is also kind of a privileged position. I, um, you know, I have a friend who's a thriller writer and his first novel, he thought of it as being kind of literary, but there was a murder mystery in it. So he sold that book. And then his agent said to him a few months later, you know, so what are you working on now? And he described his new project. You know, I'm writing a book about X, Y, and Z. The agent said, no, you're not. Didn't you read your contract? <laughs> and the contract stipulated he had to bring out a book in the same genre as the first book. So you know, he's had an incredibly successful career as a thriller writer and is very happy doing that. But he was trapped very early in genre. Um, so I feel very lucky not to have anything like that at play in my creative life. I haven't actually tested this theory, but I kind of feel like I could write anything. And my publishers would at least be open to it. Um, so I think that if I did come out with another post-apocalyptic novel, that um, there would be interest in that. But... My current work, which I don't want to talk about too much, but it doesn't give away very much to say that it's not post-apocalyptic. It's uh, pre-apocalyptic, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's very different from Station Eleven. And I, uh, I feel a lot of freedom in my creative life. I think that my publisher would be happy with another post-apocalyptic book, but I don't need to write another post-apocalyptic book. And, yeah, the other part of your question, this whole question of genre, it's just... It's just so subjective. My, my first three novels were um, generally categorized as literary fiction, or sometimes they get the label literary noir in the United States and Canada. But in France, those were categorized as thrillers. So I would go to these French thriller festivals, and I'd be sitting next to the guy who wrote Three Days of the Condor. You know, it just seemed like a totally different genre to me. But France has a much broader definition of what constitutes a thriller or a mystery novel. Um, with Station Eleven, I was very conscious of wanting to write a book in a different genre than my first three novels. And those first three novels, I guess I'd call them literary fiction, but there's a pretty strong narrative drive and a strong criminal element to the plot. With Station Eleven, you know, it's set partly in the present day, but about 60% of it is set in this post-apocalyptic landscape. And I didn't really, I guess I thought of myself as writing literary fiction that was also post-apocalyptic. Um, I suppose I've been thinking of science fiction as being more about science fictional, uh, fictional technologies. Um, so I was a little bit surprised when that label was applied. My, I was a little bit hesitant about being labeled a sci-fi writer with Station Eleven, but that was really purely financial concern on my part. Um, you know, I, it's such an honor to be kind of lumped into the same category as, say, Margaret Atwood or Isaac Asimov. I love those books. Um, but I, I was really worried that if Station Eleven were labeled a sci-fi novel, then I would miss out on a wider readership, which was really why I'd wanted to jump to a bigger publisher in the first place. So 
I, um, yeah, it's something that I wrestled with a little bit. You know, there are people who've said to me, or, you know, I've read online, um, oh, I'm not going to read Station Eleven because I'm not really into sci-fi. Or conversely, you also hear, well, I'm not really, I'm not going to read Station Eleven because I really only read sci-fi, and obviously Station Eleven's literary fiction. So, you know, you can fall through the genre cracks sometimes. Were those concerns all on your mind as you were writing? Um, no, not really. No, not until it was published, and I started to hear the sci-fi label being thrown around a little bit. Um, it was also a concern on my publisher's part. So if you think of the uh, the American and Canadian jacket art for Station Eleven, it's these tents lit up from within under a starry night sky on a field of grass. The actual photograph, there's no grass. It looks like an alien planet. It's a sort of desert landscape. And um, the sales reps got back to Knopf, and they said, you know, you've got a starry night sky. It's called Station Eleven, and this looks like the surface of the moon. Like, you know, this is going to be read as sci-fi, and literary readers won't like it. So they photoshopped in the grass to make it more Earth-like. <laughs> so, yeah, so it was something that all of us were kind of thinking about in the lead-up to publication and trying to figure out how to deal with. On the overall question of genre, I read a really good piece about it by Joshua Rothman on the New Yorker website. This was back in, I think, November 2014, where he was talking about Station Eleven as a jumping-off point to talk about genre more broadly. And he made what I think should be an obvious point, but sometimes isn't, which is that, of course, a book can be more than one genre. You know, we have such a mania for classification, I feel, in all aspects of our lives. You know, everything's black or white, Republican or Democrat, one or zero. It can get awfully binary. But to me, a much more interesting and expansive way of thinking about genre is, um, you know, of course, something can be literary fiction and science fiction or speculative fiction and literary fiction and a romance or detective fiction, you know, any combination you can think of. So I like that idea with Station Eleven that it is speculative fiction, but it is also um, a literary novel. Yeah. It also occurs to me as we're talking that another thing that you've not really had to, or at least maybe outwardly not really had to deal with is the expectations placed upon a female writer. Do you, do you feel like that has come up for you? Not really. No. Um, you know, you do of course encounter sort of casual sexism that pervades every part of our society, Sure, <laughs> but yeah, I don't feel like I've really encountered that in a serious way in terms of critical reception. And, you know, I wanted to talk to you about Station Eleven today, especially because I was really interested to hear your thoughts after the events of the past couple of days um, about, you know, kind of what you think novels like this uh, that can take us into settings that were that are so foreign to us, you know, what they can kind of help us understand about life, it seems like maybe there's a certain kind of deeper, um, or a, di a different path to illuminating some things that, that, are, that can be harder to see in our day-to-day -day lives, and, and it felt all very salient to me, you know, in the past few days. Yeah, these are strange times. <laughs> Something that I admire the most about Obama as a president is that he took the time to read fiction. You know, every year he'd release his reading list. And I, I think he said his favorite book of the past year was um, Fates and Furies by Lauren Groff. So, you know, that's not a book with any obvious application to any, um, to political thought. But what fiction does is it forces us to see the world from other people's viewpoints. And 
I think that can probably lead to better decisions, generally speaking, and a greater empathy. Um, I know that it has for me. You know, I'll read a work of fiction from a viewpoint that's totally foreign to me. And there's something expansive in it. You think, oh, okay, I, I understand how somebody thinks this way. And it expands the world for you a little bit. Um, I believe Donald Trump's on record saying that he doesn't read books. So that's, that's troubling. Um, so I don't know that Station Eleven has any specific application um, to the world we find ourselves in. But I think fiction is sure helpful, you know, in these, uh, especially these in t extremely partisan times where it's so hard to imagine how other people think uh, differently than we do. You know, right. it's so, in that binary way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And this incredibly, uh, this incredibly divided, incredibly binary country. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I sat down to write this morning and, and I think I kind of broke, started to break the slump that I have been in, um, in the past few days. And, and it, it's made me really appreciative for, uh, the, the people who can kind of very immediately sort of eloquently express things because I don't think that I have that that sense of immediacy necessarily and you know to read some of like the amazing reactions and things that have been written um but you know in a more practical way I bring that up to ask what you do when you don't want to write um I usually read because I, I always have a huge stack of books that I'm trying to get to and most of them are people who want blurbs, which is a huge honor. You know, it's it's really it's really nice that people think my name on their book might make a difference. Um, on the other hand, I always feel guilty because I can't read all those books, let alone blurb them. You know, it's like this towering mountain in my office. Um, but you know, if I can get to one of those books, and that makes me feel like I've done something nice for someone. You know, if I love it, and I can say a few nice words and send them to a publicist. So I'll do that. Um, also, you know, babies are really distracting. That's uh, <laughs> been a nice thing over the past few days, hanging out with uh, my daughter, whose major concern is collecting leaves in the playground. You know, you're just, <laughs> yeah, if you can focus on the small human things, I think that could be really helpful sometimes. Right. Uh, and I saw you last week in New York, and you were at the time just finishing a short story, uh, which I know you said is a genre that you don't really write that much. Um, can you talk a little bit about why that is and, and sort of what the process of writing short fiction is for you versus essays or book reviews or novels? Yeah, sure. I've never been hugely drawn to writing short stories in a really serious way. I, I like reading short stories sometimes, but I find I'm usually more interested in writing in reading a novel. I um. I just like the scale of that project a little bit better. And I'm the same way as a writer. You know, I just, um, I guess I find more freedom and being able to just sprawl out over 300 pages and then weave together this really intricate thing. And to me, that's usually more interesting than trying to write, you know, the, uh, the little enclosed world of a five or 10 or 15 page story. So I, I never really wrote short stories in any serious way. My first writing project was a novel, Last Night in Montreal. And I've only written, let's say, four short stories in my life. You know, it's really not something I dabble in very often. Um, and the last couple of short stories I've written, they've, they've been based on things that I've caught from novels. So I wrote a story called Drifter that was, um, that was the one that was in Best American Mystery Stories back in 2013. And the way that, that came about was I was writing The Singer's Gun, and there was this character, David, who had lost his wife. And he had this kind of somewhat chilling ghost story 
about seeing his wife in a crowd. And I cut most of it from the final book because sometimes you have to cut things you really love, you know, just for the sake of velocity when you're editing the novel. But I had this chunk of prose that I really liked and it occurred to me that it could work as a standalone short story. So I edited it and uh, reworked it and went over it a million times and then came up with a story called Drifter, which was, yeah, it was just the, an expansion of that backstory. Um, it was a woman this time who'd lost her husband and starts fleeing to try to get away from his ghost, which she keeps seeing. Um, and then the story that I was just working on when I saw you the other week, um, I don't remember what the genesis of that was. Oh, that was that was kind of a weird one. It was actually based on a dream that I had, which isn't something I usually use in short fiction, but uh, or in any fiction. But I had a dream a few years ago. It was pretty banal, you know. I worked in an office somewhere, and there was a regular visitor, you know, who I saw once a week or so in the office. Nobody I can picture, just kind of a vague presence in my memory. And then somebody in the office told me, "Oh, that visitor comes from elsewhere," and. Somehow in the logic of the dream, I was given to understand that elsewhere meant really, really elsewhere, like outside of time and space. <laughs> so I um, I had a kind of sci-fi premise, you know, from that dream that I had. And I'd also caught a chapter from the book that I'm working on now. It was about a woman working in an office. So I just kind of put those things together. And, um, and yeah, that was the basis of the short story that I was working on when I saw you. Can you talk a little bit about that writing and editing process? I love the idea of, it speaks to like my need for efficiency. I think the idea that kind of, it's like a closed system, nothing gets wasted. Um, yeah. are, you, are you writing and editing at the same time or are you going completely through the end for a draft and then going back to the beginning? I'm kind of jumping back and forth. My goal is to go completely through the draft and then go back. Um, you know, my my husband, who, you know, as I mentioned, is also a writer, he has a little note next to his computer that says, get to Baghdad. And that's from the second Iraq war. You know, when um, when the invasion of Iraq happened, the, uh, you know, this, the strategy was, let's get to Baghdad and then clean up later. You know, clean up is a horrible way to put it, but that was a strategy at the time. So applying that to the writing of a draft, you know, just get to the finish, get to the end, and then go back and figure out everything else. Um so that's my goal, but sometimes I'll be kind of stuck and I won't know what to write next in the first draft because I don't work from an outline. So then what I'll do is sometimes I'll go back and edit what I already have. And then that sometimes suggests a way forward, you know, or I'll find myself kind of intrigued by this minor character who I hadn't really thought that much about the first time I wrote them. But then, you know, going back in and taking another look at that that prose, I'll think, oh, I could use this person in a different chapter somewhere else. And this might be an interesting character to, to develop. So yeah, so because there is no outline, I, you know, I jump back and forth, I edit a little bit as I go, I'm trying to get a first draft. And that first draft is always a complete mess, which I think is probably inevitable without an outline. <laughs> so um, for me, the novel really comes together in revisions. And I just go over these things a million times. Um, for Station Eleven, I once I had the first draft, I went over the book, just editing, you know, from beginning to end in linear fashion. I think about three times. And then I did all of these tricks to kind of jolt myself into seeing problems of the book. Because it's so hard to see the manuscript. You know, if you spend two and a half or three years working on this thing, you could have a typo in the first draft, in the first sentence, and you wouldn't even notice. It. I'm you just so have... intrigued. What are your tricks? 
Um, I've got some good ones. Okay, so I read the entire book aloud, which is, it's hard on your voice, but it's a really good way to catch awkward sentences. Um, I retyped the entire document within, the entire novel within the Word document. So 96,000 words. Um, that's really hard on your hands. You don't want to do that straight through. <laughs> but, but again, you know, it forces you to recognize awkward things and continuity errors. And you just see the book in a much deeper way. Um, the most useful thing that I found was editing in random page order, which sounds a little bit crazy, but what I was noticing was, well, I have a, uh, I have kind of an old printer and it can only really handle about a hundred pages at a time. So what I noticed is that when I was waiting by the printer for the next round of pages to come out, so say page 101 through 200 or so, I would pull out that first page from the printer, 101, and I would notice all of these awkward sentences that had just slipped right by me in the first four rounds of revision or whatever I'd done by that point. And what I realized is that if you revise one page at a time, completely out of sequence, you catch problems that just slide right by you otherwise. My theory is that if you know a given manuscript very well, then your brain knows what to expect and it kind of jumps over gaps. So you don't notice continuity errors and awkward sentences and repeated words. But if you revise, say, page five and then page 207 and then page 15 and just jump all over the place in the manuscript, you see a lot of things that otherwise you completely missed. You know, it just kind of jolts you out of that. So, right, so it's reading it aloud, retyping it, random page order. Um, I found a template online that's used by authors who self-publish that it uh, reformats your Word document so that it looks like a book on the page. So you have that little small square of text. That was really helpful too. You know, just anything that forces you to see a book differently, I think is helpful in revision. Absolutely. So I went through like all those crazy tricks. And then I always like to show the, uh, to show the book to three early readers which I find to be a good number because on the one hand, you don't want a huge crowd. On the other hand, you want more than two people. So that if two people say there's a problem with X, then you, you, can, yeah, you, can, you can conclude with some confidence there probably is a problem with X. So I sent it to two early readers and got their feedback and then revised based on that. My third early reader was Peter Guy, a novelist in Minneapolis who's fantastic. And I knew from past experience that he would give me the most detailed notes of anyone. So I saved him for last you know, so that he'd be the most useful for the editing process. So he sent back a very detailed editorial letter. And so I revised again based on those notes. Um, that might have been about it. And then I sent it to my agent and she had a few notes or so revised based on that. And then she sent it to, and then we, then we sold it to, um, at first it was three countries. So the three countries that had editorial feedback were the US, Canada, and the UK. So I ended up with three editors on this book. And I was kind of worried that it would be this sort of nightmarish editing by committee scenario. But all three of them were so great. And it was kind of incredible to have these three very talented editors looking at the same document and giving me their notes. So yeah, I think I went through three rounds of editors before I got to the final draft. And then, you know, the final draft, you have uh, after that, there's the proofreader, the copy editor, so like more changes are being made, really up until publication. How are you feeling when you give the material finally out to read? I think that I always struggle with this, like, 
very ego-driven response that, like, the ideal is just, like, no comments. (laughs) And I have to kind of, like, my husband is an academic, and and I feel like he has this really sort of pure attitude toward it just being like about the work and you just make the work so much better and I'm trying really hard to to channel that yeah um yeah I think I've been pretty successful in holding on to that you know that it's just about the work it's not about me and part of that has to do with having had novels published before where really what I want to avoid is a novel going out into the world with problems you know, and of course, there's no such thing as a novel that everybody likes. Um, a lot of people very vocally dislike Station Eleven, but um, you know, I want it. I want it to be as impeccable as possible, which of course requires getting that kind of feedback. So, yeah, it's not like it's easy, but um, I, I have been able to hold on to that. That it's not about me; it's about the work. I just want the work to be as good as humanly possible before before a wider a wider population of readers sees it. Are you a fan of workshopping? Is that something that you've done in the past or, or do with, you know, chunks of the projects you're working on? Uh, no, I've always been sort of scared of workshopping, to be honest. I have no formal training as a writer, so I didn't come through any kind of MFA program. I've actually never done a writing workshop, which is part of why I turned down invitations to teach, because I don't really know what goes on at a writing workshop or how that works or how you even teach people to write. Um so yeah, the thought of people kind of sitting around in a room and dissecting my work in front of me, that's kind of horrifying. I don't know. <laughs> I've never been that into it. Um, you know, everybody does this differently. I have friends who are writers who do workshop everything they do. Um, I guess I always kind of liked the solitude of writing. So I do use those early readers, and I consider that to be an invaluable part of the editorial process. But they don't get to see it until I have what I think is a polished draft. And you know, we don't sit around in a room talking about the problems of the book. <laughs> I would find that really difficult. Do you kind of feel yourself thrust into the whole MFA NYC debate being a successful writer in New York? Um, not so much. You know, it's, uh, I think it's kind of an overblown debate, to be honest. Um, I don't, I don't have any kind of formal training, as I mentioned, let alone an MFA. I have friends who have MFAs and they love the experience. So I would never argue against getting an MFA. I feel that I'm living proof that you don't need an MFA. You know, if you want to get one, you should. But if not, just read and write a lot. That's what I did. Do you want to talk a little bit about your office setup? Yeah, sure. Uh, It's kind of a strange setup. So... I have a standing desk, which I've had for years, and whether it came out of, I was having a lot of neck problems, and um, I went to an acupuncturist, and she said, oh, you have a laptop, don't you? <laughs> it's like, sure enough, I was hunched over this laptop. So that started thinking me thinking about more ergonomic setups. And then I read something about the benefits of standing desks. I think it was on a New York Times article, and it really kind of appealed to me. So I improvised one in my office with... And I've got a couple of old suitcases and like a couple of wooden crates that I use for storage. So kind of set up this rig on a regular desk with an um, external keyboard, a trackpad. And I just really liked it. So after a couple of years, I bought a bar table from Crate and Barrel, which is my current desk. But then another element at play is I really hate going to the gym. It's pretty much my least favorite activity. And I felt like I was getting really no physical exercise whatsoever except walking to and from the subway. Um, 
so I started looking into treadmill desks and I eventually took the plunge and bought this treadmill. Um, it was kind of expensive, but it's been really worth it. It's a very low treadmill that goes under a walking desk, under a standing desk. So now I probably walk about two miles a day uh, on a good day. One is my minimum, but about two. I can't compose original prose while I'm walking, but so much of our lives are eaten up by things you can do while walking a mile an hour, you know, like answering emails and, um, you know, paying your gas bill online and ordering groceries, that kind of thing. So, yeah, so I get a fair amount of walking done here at my desk, and um, I really like it. I, I used to be a dancer, and I kind of miss that. I don't miss being a dancer, but I do miss the physicality of that life. So it's been a small way to recapture that. Uh, the rest of the office, um, it's got a lot of stuff in it. I'm always trying to cut down. You know, you always end up with these mountains of books. Um, yeah, I've got this, uh, got all these framed photographs in the walls, um, most of my grandparents, um, pictures of my husband and daughter. There's a, uh, there was a wonderful thing for the UK edition of Station Eleven. My, my editor, Sophie Jonathan, had the idea of enclosing a page from the Doctor Eleven comic book um, within the novel. So she commissioned an artist, Nathan Burton, who did this incredible two-panel rendition of the Doctor Eleven book. And um, so I have that printed out at poster size and framed on my desk. I just think it's really beautiful. Um, yeah, so, you know, it's, a, it's kind of a cluttered office. I, I love being in here. That's something I've been a lot more conscious of, I think, in the last couple of years is, you know, making a space that is actually sort of conducive to creative energy, which I think that, you know, maybe when I was younger, I thought was something that just was kind of there or wasn't. And now right. kind of that idea of like, no, cultivating that and, and kind of yeah. protecting it. When you're writing all day, um, are you going straight through? You know, I, th I think I was saying to you, I've been super into this, uh, this rhythm that I read some article about, about, you know, like brain uh, productivity about, you know, 90 minutes on and 20 minutes off being kind of this like great cycle. So I've been kind of really into doing that lately. Do you do you work on a timed method of any way? Has it been working, the 90 minutes, 20 minutes? Because I'm always looking for a new balance. I do really like it. I find that the day gets away from me, but I don't think that's the method's fault. <laughs> I think right. that after a certain <laughs> right. time, I just kind of fall apart with it. It's a really good thing in the morning. And I've been, I'm really bad at, you know, that break not really being a break. So I'm, mm -hmm. it's kind of making me more conscientious about, okay, use that 20 minutes to meditate or use that 20 minutes to even like, like I find like how, I don't know if you're the same way, like household chores, mildly comfortable while I'm working at home. It's just like, I, I kind of enjoy if I can just like take 15 minutes and like load the dishwasher. That seems kind yeah. of pleasant somehow. <laughs> That's a good strategy. Yeah. I do break up the day. It's usually either an hour or two hours. I really love the freedom app that turns off the internet. So I'll turn off the internet for maybe an hour or, or sometimes two hours and decide I'm only going to work on the new novel for that period of time. And then, then I'll take a break usually for about a half hour or so, you know, to pay bills and answer emails and all the rest of the little things. Um, yeah. And then jump back in or it depends on, so often I'm juggling more than one project. So, you know, the program will be, all right, I'm going to work on the novel for two hours and I'm taking a half hour break and I'm having lunch and then I'm working on the essay that's due next week, like that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I'm going to try that 90 minute, 20 minute thing. It sounds really good. Do you try to hit a certain word count in a day? Uh, no, I just try to do as much work as I possibly can before the nanny goes home. I feel like you have such a healthy attitude toward writing. 
uh, it's the only way I'm able to get stuff done, to be honest. Um, yeah, I remember being at a party once, and I think my third book was about to come out, and somebody said, oh, you're so prolific. And I was like, you know, I'm really, I think I have a reputation for prolificacy, but um, I, you know, I'm really not. I don't write that quickly, but I do write unromantically, and I think uh, that sure helps with the speed. Um, you know, it's just so easy to waste time. And this is, this is kind of morbid, but for better or worse, I feel like I have, since I was a child, always been very aware of mortality and of thinking, you know, these are, these are the only hours and days that you get probably. Um, so, you know, you, I just don't want to waste any of them. Um, yeah. So I, I really struggled to, to, uh, to be focused and to just spend as much time as possible writing fiction you know, instead of reading Jezebel or whatever else comes up. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's this quote that I really like from Austin Kleon. Most questions can come down to two things, like, I'm scared and I don't know what to do. And he's like, the answers are, someday you'll be dead and keep working. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I'd never heard it articulated that way, but that is pretty much my philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> can we talk a bit about ideas? I mean, I know that's always a really complicated thing to try to articulate, but you know, you just sort of maybe your note taking process or when you start to feel that an idea is growing into something substantial and, and how you sort of work in that more amorphous space before it becomes a project. All right. Um, I don't really know, which I don't mean to sound um, coy or mysterious, but yeah, I mean, if I look back with my first novel, Last in Montreal, I just kind of had an image in mind of a car driving through the desert. And so the process of figuring out that book was having that starting image and then that premise, the car driving through the desert, raises questions. You know, why are they driving through the desert? Well, perhaps somebody's following them. So in answering those questions, the plot was formed. But then at the same time, I'd been reading a lot about dead languages, and I was really fascinated in that as a subject. So what I found with all my books is that Really, you know, I'll have a premise and then also just whatever my interests are at the time. You know, you read an interesting article or an interesting book. Those interests kind of adhere themselves to the work in progress. So with, uh, with The Singer's Gun, I was interested in writing about illegal immigration and um, specifically fake documents at the industry of selling fake passports and fake social security cards. I was kind of fascinated by that. So, yeah, I don't really... It's hard for me to pinpoint an exact point where where an idea turns into a project. Um, and, and yeah, like with with my current book, um, I thought that it was a new idea, but then I was reading through a notebook of mine from 2011, and I came across a note uh, to myself, like, "Oh, idea for a book," and then like the idea that I'm working on now, which I'd forgotten that I'd had that idea way back then. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of mysterious to me. I think that happens all the time. That certainly happens all the time to me where I think, and and again, like I, I love efficiency so much that it really frustrates me, but I do feel like I keep forgetting and relearning the same things over and over again. Yeah, yeah. which, you know, maybe you could argue that you did, never really forgot. Exactly. <laughs> you know, you're subconscious somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember, so I was one of those kids who read the uh, the book review supplement in the newspaper every day. I'm sorry, every week. Um, and I remember reading a review of a novel 
I've forgotten what it was, but Twitter is good for crowdsourcing sometimes. And it turns out it was Mezzanine by Nicholas Baker, which I haven't read. But when I was about 14, I read a book review of it. And um, there was a line from the review that stayed with me forever. The reviewer said, the plot, a man buys shoelaces. And that just gave me the idea that it should be theoretically possible to base the premise of a novel on pretty much anything, no matter how slender or you know, yeah, no matter how slight it is, it finds shoelaces. So I was thinking about that pretty consciously with my second novel, The Singer's Gun, which was almost a challenge to myself. My starting premise was, um, what if a man leaves his wife on their honeymoon? And, you know, the whole thing spun out from there. So, yeah, that's something I've thought about, too. Um, one of the benefits to writing without an outline is that there's sort of infinite openness to new ideas and to new connections being formed between ideas that you have that you might not have expected before you began the project. So yeah, I really, um, I'll have a premise of some kind and then I'll just sort of start writing and see what develops. Yeah. I, I really like that when you said, when you quoted that line from the book review, it just immediately felt like this very like sort of delicious liberation kind of feeling just like, Oh, you can do, you can do anything. Yeah, exactly. You can just write a novel. (laughs) (laughs) What's your reading process like in terms of fitting into and informing your writing? Are you a big notes in the margins person? Do you just kind of consume a lot and and see how it all flushes out? Um, I just consume a lot and see how it all flushes out. I don't really do notes in the margins. Um, You know, I'll make a little mark in the margin if it's something that particularly strikes me and then pull the page so I can find it later. But yeah, that's about it. I um I don't have a lot of formal education in literature. <laughs> I don't have a lot of formal education, period. But um, I, yeah, I, so I never really got into that habit, you know, in my college years of um, of making margin notes, and uh, and that seems to be where that habit develops for most people. What are some of the books you go back to, or authors you go back to? Um, I really love Jennifer Egan, A Visit from the Goon Squad. I, um, I've gone back to that book a couple of times just to kind of marvel at the character development and at the way all those pieces fit together. Um, Dan Sean's another one. I've gone back to his novel, Await Your Reply, for the same reason, really. I think he does some fascinating things with structure in that book. He has a new book coming out in the spring, which is really exciting. You had said earlier, you know, that you were interested at one point in a writing project about dead languages and then about, you know, the fake passport industry. And what, what other kind of nonfiction interests do you have that you see informing your work? Um, I'm interested in science. I, I just think from, I think probably partly from the time that I spent working at a cancer research lab where um, I'd never really realized before I worked in that environment, how creative science is. You know, I think that People in the arts, I'm sure I've been guilty of this, we tend to think that we have uh, the monopoly in creativity, you know, and that everybody else is just like crunching numbers off in their mysterious cubicles or whatever. Um, But science is all asking questions and problem solving, and there is tremendous creativity and beauty in a lot of it. Um, So I'm interested in that, and I always read the science articles in The New Yorker. Um, What else? I'm I'm interested in movies. Probably like the personalities involved, the stories of how they get made. Um, yeah, has Station just, Eleven been optioned for a movie? It has been, yeah. Usually what happens is you option the book for a movie and then nothing happens. <laughs> Somebody's working on a screenplay, which seems hopeful. That's cool. That, um, that will be a, a new, exciting process to go through, I'm sure. 
Definitely, yeah. I think that probably the movie would necessarily be very different from the book, just because the book has so many so many strands to it, you know, time, different timelines, a lot of characters, all those moving parts. Um, but I feel like that's fine. You know, I, would, I think the movie will be a very different thing, and I'm so curious to see what that thing is, to see what somebody else would do with that material. How has motherhood changed your writing life, both practically and just, you know, sort of your your thought process, your, your perspective? Um, really mostly just practically, you know, I, I was sort of worried that I'd have a child and my sensibility would completely change, which was worrisome because I was pretty deeply into my current project. <laughs> I didn't want to have to scrap it. Um, so far, I, I feel like I'm pretty much the same writer. Um, I would be able to add more detail to a book with a baby in it just because now I'd know what I was talking about. You know, I, um, I look back at which book was it? The Lola Quartet has a baby in it. And the details are so sketchy because I had no idea what I was <laughs> talking about. So, you know, something like that, I would just have more knowledge. Um, the impact has been primarily practical. Um, you know, logistical stuff. Like when I go on tour, I have to spend an enormous amount of money on childcare, that kind of thing. Um, or you know, I can't really work on weekends anymore because on weekends I'm, I'm looking after the baby, which, which is wonderful. You know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a nice break. And, and yeah, just the way that your days become organized around the baby waking up at 5.30 or 6 and going to bed at 7. You were talking about your initial switch uh, to Station Eleven looking for a bigger audience and a bigger publisher. And, and I wonder if you think now about kind of a... I want to say creative legacy, but not in the sense that you're going anywhere, but just, you know, like a long-term goal, kind of where you see yourself going now. I just have kind of a general goal of writing the best novels that I possibly can. You know, you're always aiming for this kind of elusive perfection as a novelist. And of course, you never reach perfection. There's no such thing in the arts. It's so subjective. But I just want to continue to refine my craft to the greatest possible extent. And I, I want to have a body of work that's as good as it can possibly be, you know, that has no corners that have been cut, where every effort has been made to, to refine the book to its highest possible level. So, yeah, I think that's, that's about as far as I've thought it through. Do you still feel doubt um, as much after Station Eleven? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean... Um, yeah, you always, I always feel doubt. I, uh, I always have moments during a book where I wonder if I've maybe wasted two years of my life because I have no idea what I'm doing and none of it makes sense. <laughs> you know, and, um, I certainly have that with the current project. Um, my experience of writing a novel through all of my books has been that it's just such a roller coaster. You'll have days where you look at the work that you've done and you think, all right, you know, there's something kind of solid here. I think I've got something to work with. And then you'll look at the same work the next day. And you'll think, wow, this is such a disaster. I've just wasted two years. <laughs> so I do still feel that. I think that the reception that Station Eleven has received has given me both much more pressure and much more confidence as a writer. And I see those two things kind of balancing each other out. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our website, wmfapodcast.com. You can email us at hello at wmfapodcast.com and find us on Twitter and Instagram at wmfapodcast. 
Download and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Reviews are greatly appreciated. Or visit our website for more options. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC.